0: Understanding how the fonts work on Unix isn't simple. I had never thought when starting this research that this field was this deep. Not only is it overwhelming, but the information around the subject is also not easily digestible. The last two weeks I've been researching this and in this podcast you'll barely find the essential. It's still skimming the surface of the topic. If I explain something in a wrong manner, uh, be sure to correct me in the extended podcast discussion thread on the forums. And the people that truly understand the full font stack can be counted on one's hand. And for that, I'd like to salute those true heroes. They deserve respect. And if they had an anthem song, I would have played it at the beginning of this episode, but they don't have one. So yes, today we're going to discuss the, the fonts on Unix. I'm Vinam, and you're listening to The Nixers Podcast. Text is made up of sentences, and sentences are made up of words, which are made up of characters. Written text is our primary mean of communication and computers and we need a way to represent this on our machines. And that's what fonts are. When X11 clients, or more generally, anything wants to draw text on the screen, they use font files, which are files that contain the set of glyphs, characters or symbols or numerals and rules that are used to know how to draw that font. So let's first stop and think for a moment. How would you write a software that draws text on the screen? A benign algorithm would look like this. First, you have a file with the list of characters and their pixel representation. Second, you place the pen to the cursor position. Third, you load the glyph image. Fourth, you translate the glyph to the origin of the pen position. Five, you render the glyph to the target device. Six, you increment the pen position by the glyph's advanced width and pixel and 7 you start over again at step 3. However, it's not as simple as that. What about right to left writing? What about languages that need to reshape their characters differently depending on what it's followed by or preceded by? What about spacing between letters that also varies? What about making the text clearer instead of blocky by only fitting the pixel space? What about resizing the text size? So many ifs. The method of laying text on the screen we just mentioned is not far from the truth when it comes to TTYs. The Virtual Console is handled by the console driver, and it's that driver that has the role of drawing the text. Configuring those drivers differs between the different types of Unix-like operating systems. FreeBSD, for example, comes with no fonts in the kernel, but loads the default fonts from the console driver, or VT, or syscons, while Linux, NetBSD, and OpenBSD have a default font inside their kernels. And most Unix-like operating systems, those fonts can be changed through configurations. Generally, the process unfolds like this, there's a keymap for the console that connects the keyboard layout currently configured with the key pressed. For instance on Linux that key maps is changed and users share keybd keymaps. At this point we can know which characters are requested. Now we have to get what we want to display from the font structure or file. The format of the console fonts are just hex values for the pixel representation of every characters. They are fixed in size, usually 8 by 16 pixels, and monospaced, which makes them very simple, more or less literal bitmap representations of characters. Okay, so we got a pixel representation of our characters, now we have to display it. To do that, we have to use the Videographic Array Frame Buffer, the VGA Frame Buffer, which is a standard working on virtually all post-90s graphic cards that let you directly display things on the screen, but those also work on CGA, EGA, MDA, which are similar to VGA. However, there's a condition here, the console fonts are limited to 256 glyphs and if they want to double to for example 512 glyphs for unicode fonts, they have to reduce the color used from 16 to 8. The eight other colors are originally used to display a brighter version of the first eight, so that the extra bits are used for the extra character association. So this translation is encoded inside the Unicode font file and a translation table called the Unimap. Once that's all set, the console can send those bits to the frame buffer and they are displayed. The position of drawing then moves where the cursor is. So that text buffer is a part of the VGA memory, which describes the content of a text screen in terms of code points and character attributes. This is sort of similar to our first guess as to how characters would be displayed on the screen, just a notch more difficult and constraint. The constraint of 512 glyphs can be omitted through a frame buffer translation layer, but we won't discuss that here. Now let's discuss font extensions and formats in the console. As far as the BSD goes, it highly depends on which flavor you are using. For Open and NetBSD, the font format is WS Cons, and it's hard-coded in the kernel. For Linux, the formats supported are PSF, basic Screen Fonts, and PSFU for Unicode fonts, and they're located in user share console fonts. For FreeBSD, the fonts supported depend on the console driver in use. For example, if you're using syscons, the format is .fnt, and it's located in user share syscons fonts. And for the VT, aka newcons, the format supported is the hex fonts. And note that this one supports Unicode while the later doesn't and the fonts are set manually not necessarily located anywhere the common thing between all of these formats is that they are bitmap fonts and thus they are easily editable and convertible from one to another and there are many tools to convert from the pdf format to ws from pdf to hex format many PSF tools such as OTF to BDF, etc. You can even show those bitmaps directly on the screen using a tool called RAW-SF. And if you were wondering what that BDF stands for, it stands for Glyph Bitmap Distribution Format, which is exactly what we want, which is exactly what we were talking about, just another bitmap font format. Now, the specific configuration and how to set the fonts and keyboard translation are specific to the Unix flavor and I won't list the comments themselves here, you can easily refer to the show notes for that. For instance there's the show console font on Linux which display a preview of all the glyphs and the current font, so those 256 glyphs or 512 glyphs. You rather often hear about locals and unicode that we need to set when installing a new unix-like operating system on a machine. What are those? Do they have a relation to fonts? So let's read a nice definition that clarifies this. Start of quote. A local is a set of language and cultural rules. These covers aspects such as language for messages different character sets, lexicographic conventions, and so on. A program needs to be able to determine its local and act accordingly to be portable to different cultures." So local could be used to specify anything that varies from one culture to another and whichever program can choose to respect them. So what does this have to do with anything we've said so far? Well, there's a relation to the keyboard translation table. Remember, that's the first part that translates whatever key you press into characters. This is dependent on cultures. For instance, if you have an az- T keyboard, you need to set that in the local, the VC keymap. But it doesn't stop there. Text is language and language varies by local. On a lower level, local works by changing the behavior of many functions inside the C library. For instance, isUpper, toUpper, strfTime, etc. You could display the time in a 24-hour format instead of 12-hour one. All change according to your preferences. It also changes the default language for output for many programs, for example, the man pages. There was a time where one would need to input, render, print, search, spell check, all in one language at one time. A single character set for every local. Now with the adoption of Unicode, 8 bits or multibytes instead of 7 bits as the canonical character set, we don't have to do that anymore. It's all languages all the time. The comment you have to remember about local is local. So in conclusion, locals don't really have anything directly related to fonts. When moving a layer up in the graphical land, there's more room for flexibility with fonts. There are two generic categories of font formats, either bitmap fonts, just like the ones we discussed earlier, consisting of a matrix of dots or pixels representing each glyphs, or we have the outline or vector fonts consisting of Bézier curves, drawing instruction, and mathematical formula to describe each glyphs, making them scalable. For instance, the extensions we mentioned earlier, PCF, PDF, WSCons, etc. are bitmap formats, while the extensions like OTF, TTF and PFA are outline formats. There are many font extensions which follow follow different formats falling in either one of the categories, bitmap or outline, and you can find a list of them in a link in the show notes. A font itself is a family or also called a typeface. For instance, the font vera-sans is a typeface. The typeface can divide up into different versions of that font. One could be bold, another italic, another serif, another monospace, etc. And we'll come back later to discuss what is inside some of those files and how to manage them. We've seen how text is layered on the screen when using the TTY, but what about the graphical environment? How is it rendered there? So, starting from the bottom up, here's how it goes. At the complete bottom of the stack, the display server receives some shapes to draw. A library is used to send the appropriate glyphs to the display server, doing some adjustments before sending it when appropriate. And upper to to that, there's a library that is used to load the font from the file and rasterize it. And rasterizing it means that it's converting it to a bitmap if it's not already and it can also add some hinting and anti which we'll discuss in a bit a font layout and shaping engine keeps track of where to lay down everything and how figuring out how the complex rules for the font file and language are used it's a sort of state machines for the glyphs and upper than that there's a software responsible for managing the fonts configuring what kind of adjustments needs to be made on them knowing their location and searching for them and above all that, there's a software requesting some text to be drawn on the screen. Don't worry about most of the, de- of the details here, just try to grasp that there are different softwares laid upon each other doing different tasks. We're going to name the different softwares later on and explain in depth what they do, but you'll need for that a little overview of it and that's why I'm just saying how it all happens here, to make it easier to understand later on. Okay, so that's a very generic overview of how things should happen to draw text in a graphical environment. But before continuing, we need to take a little detour to explain something. We went into the details of how to display bitmap fonts, but what about vector outline fonts, which most of the graphical fonts are. The process of converting text from a vector description to a raster or bitmap description is called font rasterization. This also involves doing some graphical operations to make the text easier to read, to optimize rendering it, like anti-aliasing and hinting. But why do we need those, and what does hinting and anti-aliasing do? The problem emerges from the fact that we're using pixelized screens. It all comes down to the resolution of that screens, the number of dots per inch, DPI. Fonts are not measured in DPI, however, they are measured using another metric the points, so that irrespective of the output device still keep the same physical dimension. And thus, it would mean that the higher the DPI, the cleaner the drawing of that glyph would appear, and the lower the DPI, the more distorted the glyph would appear. It's not unusual for, print- for printers to have a DPI going from 300 to 500, while most of today's LCD screens have a DPI around of 96, which is insufficient for accurate rasterization. And because all problems need a solution, we certainly have many of them. Let's discuss three. Font hinting. Font hinting aka grid fitting is a technique that modifies the shape of the glyph so that it is ensured to line up with the rasterization grid. In that case of LCD, it means lining up with the pixels. That gives a more consistent text than the unhinted counterpart, however this consistency comes at the price of accuracy. Hinted text doesn't have the same shape that was intended by the font creator. However, hinting is a great way to make small text readable on low-resolution devices. There are many levels of hinting, and hinting can happen at different layers in the font rendering stack. For example, the hinting rules can be embedded inside the font file, or it can be automatically done by some library along the way, without any rules implied. And notabene, until May 2010, true type bytecode hinting was patent encumbered by Apple. Anti-aliasing is a technique that uses the property of a pixel being able to display shades of colors, instead of full-blown red or green or blue. To create a blur signal around the glyph to reduce its maximal frequency. In layman's term, anti-aliasing means to avoid aliasing, which in the signal processing world means the effect that causes different signals to become undistinguishable from one another, which in our case means that because we have a low DPI, many details are contained within a single pixel, and thus are indistinguishable and to do that we create a ghostly effect that creates back the details this does a good job at preserving the shape and aspect of the glyph but at the cost of clarity because anti-alias text is made of much lower contrast as opposed to hinting Anti-aliasing can't be embedded in fonts and is usually done at another layer now the question is can we combine those and would we get better results the answer is that it depends on the order of how they are applied if hinting is done on an already anti-aliased text it will consider the ghost applied around the glyph and also apply hinting to it, which might deform the text even more. This is particularly an issue if the hinting is embedded inside the font file and is applied directly by the layer that is responsible of reading and handling the font files. The solution to this is to apply hinting and anti-alias at another layer and not in the font and only to use slight hinting and not full-blown aggressive hinting. The last technique we'll discuss is sub-pixel rendering. Sub-pixel rendering is a technique, or more of a hack, that uses a property of LCD or OLED screen pixels to make it appear as if the resolution of the display is higher than what it is. A pixel is composed of multiple sub-pixels, it might be three sub-pixels, one for red, one for green, one for blue. Those pixels are arranged and laid in a fixed order for the same screen. So for instance, a pixel has the red-green-blue subpixel laid out horizontally and that order from left to right. The way subpixel's rendering increases the resolution of the screen is by playing around with those subpixel in a way similar to anti-aliasing but at a smaller level, combining this with the fact that our eyes have difficulties finding differences between the subpixel's colors when they are using small intensities. Imagine it as considering subpixels as if they were whole pixel, though it's not really that. There's an excellent link in the show notes showing in details how this works, and if you want more information on that topic, you can read it there. And there are drawbacks to subpixel rendering. The first one is that it only works with displays that uses technology similar to pixels. And The second drawback is that sometimes you can notice the colors of the subpixels with your eyes. That is an effect called color fringing, seeing the pixels' colors on the fringe of the glyph. It is due to bad filtering such as subpixel rendering not regulating correctly the intensities of the subpixels. It can be countered by using a better filtering to normalize the difference between adjacent subpixels. And nota bene here, Microsoft have several patents on subpixel rendering technology and thus it disabled it by default and free software rendering technology such as FreeType. So those are techniques to make or try to make the font look better. But better is a subjective word. One relevant example is when Apple first released their Safari browser for Windows in 2007. While doing that, they bundled with the browser their font rasterizer, which gave the opportunity for people to judge which approach of font rasterization they found better. So multiple bloggers commented on this subject, some liking it, while most didn't. But overall, there was no real way of knowing which one was better suited at its job, because both did what they were intended to do. Windows users preferred Microsoft fonts, and Apple users preferred the Apple system. And the moral of the story is that consistency between font rendering within the operating system is the key. Now that we know the challenges of font rasterization, we can finally discuss the real software stack that sits on the free Unix system. We'll discard Apple, but you can still read about it in the show notes. Let's just say that it uses quartz for rendering on the screen, it's the graphic engine, and take the approach of not forcing glyphs into exact pixel position. So no hinting at all. Not even the hinting found inside the font file itself. Instead, it uses a combination of anti-alias, sub-pixel rendering, and sub-pixel positioning. The rasterization and layout takes place inside the AAT, Apple Advanced Typography. That's all we'll say. So on other Unix-like operating system, what's the stack? The answer is somewhat non-binary, it's not straightforward, because as with everything in the free Unix world, there are many options to achieve the same goal. The result is a collection of separate modules sitting on top of each others, each influencing the rasterization process. At the very bottom of the stack we have the graphical stuffs, the things that handle directly drawing on the screen. This is usually the display server, X11 or a Wayland compositor. It receives the shapes from somewhere and draws them. That's its job. X11 has the XRender extension that provides basic support for caching client side rendered glyphs shapes so that they are not compute and recomputed again. Now, moving up, we have to get the piece responsible for interacting with the display server the piece that uploads the image that we want to render. Some times ago this piece was directly incorporated inside X11, and so the render extension we just talked about didn't need to exist either. Well, it's still there and can still be used, so we can't really talk in a past tense. It's regarded as the older server-side font handling and referred to as the Core X font subsystem. When it's in use the x server handles the rendering and loading of the font it loads and stores each character inside the x server so the font is accessible to anyone that is connected to it it draws them upright however it doesn't support nor anti-aliasing nor subpixel rasterization and you have to use a weird notation called xlfd x logical font description to specify which font you want to use Moreover, it's only recently that it started to support scalable font, and it only supported bit- bitmap fonts before. Utilities such as xfontcell and xlsfont help you choose the configuration for the xlfd, and the font locations need to be hard-coded in an x11 configuration file by adding values to the font path directives by, or by running the xset fp command. So in that scenario, the X server does all the heavy work, but it's not very flexible and doesn't render smooth fonts, so things slowly got decoupled and let the handling of fonts to be done by clients instead, and that's where the render extension we talked about was born. As with everything graphic, you need a layer that would be used to send the glyphs and handle the graphical side. Other than xlib and xcb that are used for communication with X11, as with any X application, There are libraries that deal with optimizing the rendering for specific video hardware and output formats. For instance, you have the Carol library that is optimized for 2D graphics, you have SDL2, OpenGL for 3D, etc. Namely, the used libraries to interact with XRender extension are XFT, the semi obsolete generic replacement for the XCore font, you have Kero for the GNOME stack, and you have Qt for the KDE stack. That resolves sending the glyph to the X server, but we still got a lot of things to do. We have to get the font, load it, rasterize it, clean it, customize it, etc. XFT, Kero, and Qt, other than interacting with the X render extension, act as an interface to the FreeType font rasterizer. Those sit in the middle. FreeType is the most popular font rasterizer library on free Unixes. It's small, efficient, highly customizable, portable, and under two free licenses, a BSD-like one and a GPL-like one. FreeType has the widest range of supported font formats in the world, and thus it's used in a lot of places like the Android operating system, the PlayStation, and Apple even uses it next to its AAT and iOS and macOS, and it's even used in the OpenGDK platform. As we discussed rasterizing, is the process of rendering text into bitmaps and using some techniques to make, to make the text clearer on the screen. FreeType provides that easy to use and uniform interface to load and access the content of font files and get back a nice bitmap of the cliff requested. FreeType provides a way to tell, to tell it to activate auto-hinting, true type bytecode hinting, which is uh, the font hinting embedded inside the font, anti-alias, subpixel rendering, etc. So it does all we mentioned earlier if we ask it to. So to recap so far, we have that. We have a graphic handling layer sitting between the XRender extension and FreeType, which is the font rasterizer. One thing that needs to be mentioned is that some of those libraries sitting in the middle apply some fancy changes to the glyph themselves before sending it rather than having FreeType doing it. For instance, Caro do sub-pixel rendering and filtering itself, Qt falls back to the FIR filter when FreeType doesn't offer filtering, and XFT offers some intra-pixel filtering. That's cool, now we need something that will tell FreeType which font to load, to select, and what kind of pretty changes it needs to apply to it. That's a job for a font configuration engine that goes by the name of fontconfig. The job of fontconfig is to provide an interface for font discovery and configuration, such as if hinting is activated for a specific font or not. One of its jobs is to always match a font whenever the case. If the current font doesn't support a character, it should transparently fall back to another font if possible. And it supports UTF-8 all the way, so it always yields reasonable results. Its font selection mechanism is very convenient and expressive, It lets users match fonts according to patterns and characteristics, such as if the font is slanted, bold, its size, etc. And we'll discuss font config specifics in one of the next section. At this point, we've got rendering, rasterizing, and font selection and configuration. You would think that this would be enough, but the font stack doesn't end here. There is yet another layer, if you remember correctly, and that is the font layout engine. They can be FreeBD, HarfBuzz, ICU, M17N, and SIL Graphit. Those engines are mainly used to support internationalization, as in multiple different languages with different shaping and layout rules. Let's only discuss one of them, HarfBuzz. It sits on top of FreeType as an open type layout engine. OpenType being the de facto font format to support complex text rendering on free Unixes, it's the library that actually understands the sophisticated features inside the font. It keeps track in a sort of state machine of the glyphs that need to be drawn, rearranged, reshaped, inserted in different situation and context. It's context sensitive, and without a layout engine, you wouldn't be able to type correctly in certain languages because they arrendt a one-to-one mapping between the character you enter and the glyph that needed to appear. Simply said, the layout engine takes complex Unicode text and spurts out the right glyph indices and this is in the right position where they should appear, taking in consideration the whole string. Now finally the font stack is complete. Atop of this stack there are even more abstraction layers such as Pango, which is like a roof supporting different sorts of font layout backends. For instance, Pango is used in the GTK engine, and it regroups Kero or XFT, plus font config for the phone configuration, and HarfBuzz as a layout engine. But Pango doesn't stop there; it's, a, it's multi-platform and supports many backends. Finally, we got a bit of an understanding of this Russian doll. Now we can take a bit of time to explore what's inside some of the font files. Let's first name some of the formats that are supported by FreeType TrueType font, TTF, and TrueType Collection, TTC, CCF font, WAF fonts, open type fonts, which are exactly more or less like TTF fonts but open, Type1 fonts. CID Keyed Fonts, SFNT Fonts, X11 PCF Fonts, Windows FNT Fonts, PDF Fonts, PFR Fonts, Type 42 Fonts. Now let's revisit our definition of what a font is. Start quote. A font is a collection of various character images that can be used to display or print text. The images in a single font share some common properties including look, style, serifs, etc. Typographically speaking, one has to distinguish between a font family and its multiple font faces, which usually differ in style, though come from the same template." Quote. In some cases, the whole font family can, pre- can be represented by multiple files, where each file represents a different face of the font, in some other cases all the faces of the font are included in the same file, which we call a font collection. And thus, a single font file might, in fact, just be a single font face of a font family. Those files may contain character images named glyphs, character metrics information regarding the layout of the text, and processing of specific character encodings. It's important to know that a single character can have several distinct images, as in different glyphs that can be used depending on the context. There are also cases where multiple characters joined together can form a single glyph. This relationship between characters and glyph is complex and that's what the layout engine we talked about handle. Each glyph has an index and the font file contains a table called the character maps which is used to convert character codes for a given encoding. There can be multiple car maps per fonts. Remember when we said that the layout engine job was to handle which correct glyph's index was to be returned in what situation. Also associated with the glyphs, there are various metrics to describe how and where to place and render the text, and how much point should the cursor move advance forward after the text insertion. Metrics are extremely important for the text flow. And remember that all the metrics are expressed in points and not in pixels, except for bitmap font formats, and that's what is contained in a font file. Let's return to the management part of the fonts, the part that fontconfig takes care of. Fontconfig provides many utilities, all starting with the prefix fc. For instance, you have fc list, which lists all the fonts available and cataloged for usage in X11 programs. You have sc. Dash query to query font files you have fc dash match to try to match an available fonts or alias used to describe the font so font config by default tracks down the fonts inside certain default locations directories such as user share fonts and and the home directory dot local share fonts it will traverse them recursively looking for all available fonts and them Font config uses xml files and the etc-fonts directory to generate its own internal configurations. By default, it parses etc-fonts-fonts.conf, which sets some default options, such as the default directories to read fonts from we just mentioned. They are also the equivalent for local user configuration, which takes precedence over the global one. The etc-fonts also contains a conf.d subdirectory that has additional configuration files covering different aspects of font config. These files start with a number indicating the order in which they are executed. Now, you might remember the time I mentioned that hinting was only great when it was done before anti-aliasing. Well, that's where you choose the order of things, with those numbers in front of the files. Usually, distributions offer some preset files that you can symlink inside that directory, as it's very tedious to create your own configurations. For example, to enable subpixel RGB rendering globally, you can go into etc etcfont.conf.d and do a symlink to 10subpixelrgb.conf. Now, in those files, you can also pinpoint how the fallback mechanism will take place and change it. I won't cover all the different things that can be done in those XML files, but again, there are links in the show notes discussing this and details, and you can also refer to the fonts.conf man page, which is not bad at all that so it has a lot of information. And to find out what settings, fallbacks, etc., are in effect for a specific font, you can use FC match with the verbose option, and you can search for a font you want. Now, how do we go about installing a font? It's simple, it's three-step. We download the font we want and the format supported by free type. We move the font to a directory managed by font-config and make sure it's readable. And lastly, we update font-config cache by running fc-cache. That's it, end of the line. Remember that for the xcore font you have to do something else. You have to edit the x server level configuration and it's not as simple. You'd have to mark the directory as an xcore font directory and then tell the x server to consider them using the mk font scale. mk font dir plus +fg xset fp rehash etc. Or instead of all that hassle, you can re- rely on your package manager. Let's name some useful comments related to fonts. XRDB for the fonts and their X resources, XFontCell and ShowFont for the font and the X server, XLS fonts, FSLS fonts to list some fonts and the X server, they are MKFoundier to create an index for the XFont files. FS info etc etc and there are some gnome configuration tools such as gnome font properties gnome font viewer gtk font cell there are also all the font config tools we mentioned before starting with fc dash there are many many utilities to convert from one type of fonts to another, DXFC, BDF to PCF, BDF to SNF. There are utilities to edit BDF fonts, the bitmap fonts, BDF resize, XMBDF add. And there are utilities to view OTF or TTF fonts, like some web interface. Or you can use Image Magic to display the fonts using the display command, like display fontname.ttf. And there are some utilities like Font Manager and Font Matrix that let you organize groups of fonts and install or uninstall to preview them to see their features if they're installed or not. And the last utilities to mention are the utilities that can manipulate the settings of the X server itself, the one stored in the X settings specification. Now, let's mention some tips. There's something called mfinality that regroups a set of patches for free type with a bunch of presets for font config. It is said to show higher quality rendering, but as we've said earlier that definition is somewhat subjective. The GRE Java runtime environment fonts are harder to configure because you have to set some environment variables so that they respect the anti-alias and hinting you want. So the next time you rage about some ugly font inside a Java application, You need to go and set those. Also fonts are not limited to text, a lot of fonts are emoji or pictographic fonts. They are widely used around the internet as icons, sets, and is also used a lot in the rising community to decorate bars. And if you're falling short on Unicode fonts, there is a link in the show notes that regroup many great Libre open source fonts and all languages. The website is called unifont.org. And lastly, there are fonts that are metric compatible together, that means that their metrics match, and as you remember, the metrics are everything related to the size of the glyphs, so those fonts, when they have the same face, can be used interchangeably as replaceable fonts without changing too much the aspects of the text. Remember that in your next web project, you can use those as fallback. Let's discuss making your own font and typography. To make your own font, you don't truly really have to be an expert typograph, but having some knowledge could help. The world of typography is freaking huge and that's not a surprise, writing has existed for a long time and it's obvious that there would be a domain of expertise being built around it. If someone claims to know typography, it's probably just that they have a vague idea of some concepts. You must be a graphic designer or someone who has a background in this field to be versed in the art of typography. And I'm not one of those. I had thought about including a section in this podcast about typography, but I was too overwhelmed. Nevertheless, I've linked resources in the show notes that could get you started if you wish to. Now back on topic, if you want to create or edit a font on Unix, there is a software called FontForge. It's a very advanced software with all the features you will ever need. And their official websites, they have a book called Design with FontForge, which seems like a wonderful book. It goes through all the steps needed to understand what fonts are, typography, the vocabulary, the anatomy of glyphs, and how to design fonts. So yep, glyphs even have their own anatomy. Wow. As I've said in the beginning of this podcast, phones are a Deep topic, and so I encourage you to read from the links I've added in the show notes. What enraged me when starting this research was that there was no clear document discussing the font stack on current Unix like operating systems. I truly hope this podcast enlightened you as much as researching it for it did for me, and that I haven't messed up too much of the information. So, yep. Uh, As usual, I'll add a link for contribution and you can continue discussing and the extended podcast threads. So those are the fonts on Unix-like system, on free Unix systems. And it was Venom for the Nixers podcast. (laughs)